we've only got uh, a very small number of ancient woodlands left and they're scattered around the landscape. So these are, they're basically islands surrounded by fields. Hi, I'm Holly and welcome to my podcast, Through the Trees, where I talk to my guests about a whole range of nature-based subjects. Today, I'm talking to Dean Kirkland from the Woodland Trust about what makes a healthy woodland, the importance of hedgerows and how to spot ash dieback. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for tuning in. Hi Dean, thank you for joining me for my podcast Through the Trees and I'm really intrigued to find out your answer on this first question that I ask everybody and what is your favourite tree species and why? For me it's pretty straightforward. I'm a big fan of a a quite sort of underrepresented tree really, it's say underrepresented. It's actually probably the second most common tree, it's probably the easiest way to say it, in in the English countryside and that's the ash tree. Literally just because I think a mature ash, uh, ash tree, to me, looks a lot more elegant than a mature oak tree. <laughs> it supports just about as many species. In fact, there are a couple of species that are specifically adapted to only grow on ash. The wood is, ash trees itself are so versatile. You can use ash tree wood for lots of different stuff, and it's actually a really beautiful wood if you cut it. It's such a pale, interesting colour when you're working with it. It can be used for a huge amount of different things. It actually burns particularly well. It's one of the best woods you can find for firewood because it'll burn for a very long time, giving out a lot of heat. But it's quite easy, if it's seasoned well, to actually get it to burn in the first place. And the other thing is, I'm a bit of a geek on in terms of mythology and folklore. And there's just so much out there about ash trees in, in the mythology. For example was the world tree basically the center of the world for both the uh, the celts and the norse people it connected all their different uh, realms war connected through the branches of the ash tree so for me it's just yeah again a bit of a no-brainer i love ash, ash trees out there so oh talking of folklore didn't they used to say it had healing effects on children and they used to feed them the sap and there's a lot of health benefits that in that there are myths of from this tree yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't, I mean, I'm not a herbalist, so I, I, I kind of no. wouldn't rely on the uh, how efficient it is. But yeah, so certainly belief in the past that it's uh, a really health-giving tree as well. As you say, the sap was given to children for all sorts of different ailments. And even actually the seeds of the ash tree, uh, they can be pickled. And a lot of, particularly in Japan, pickled ash uh, seeds are considered a bit of a delicacy. So oh, Something I have never tried. <laughs> no. But they're having a bit of a tough time at the moment with ash dieback, fungs that's spreading throughout significant amounts of the trees in the UK, um, which is, it particularly affects younger ash trees, doesn't it? It does. Um, and it's a great shame as my favourite tree coming in. We've only had, had this disease coming in basically from Europe for a while. But yeah, um, we, we, we're really just starting to get to learn a bit about it. It, it has a potential to be devastating. It has the potential to uh, wipe out pretty much, uh, like the Dutch elm disease, pretty much all the ash trees in the country. And if, if that happens, there'll be some big gaps in the countryside just where, where trees have been missing. Uh, but you're right, it does seem to affect quite disproportionately younger trees as well. So some of the older trees, some of the more mature trees, do show a slight resistance to it. We don't know entirely sure yet. If this is enough to, going to be enough to save those trees if they'll, if they'll recover from an attack of it or whether eventually they will succumb. Uh, but yeah, the, the younger trees uh, so far don't stand that much chance. Yeah, am I right in also thinking that a first sign of viewing the disease on the tree is that it turns a slight purpley pale colour and there's like diamond shapes around different branches that come out? 
which is killing off the bark. Yeah, it, it, you, you tend to get start to get lesions in the bark. You also, as you say, the foliage and, and some of the twigs start to uh, the, the few colour changes. Actually, it, it, a big thing of it is the foliage in patches dies off completely as well. So it does go through this colour change, and then it, it, it sort of goes brown and, and falls off. But the foliage on the rest of the tree, on other parts of the tree, can still look perfectly healthy. And it does take a number of years before it will sort of completely affect the entire tree. Uh, and also a thing to look out for if you if you do get close to one of these is actually you get lots of little, it, it does look exactly like little mushrooms growing on the branches, just little fruiting bodies of the fungus that appear there, uh, that start spread the spores everywhere. And that's another big giveaway that the, the tree's probably not as healthy as it should be. Okay, I'll keep an eye out. Um, I know that there has been some in our woodland uh, just uh, down where I go walking because they've been cutting and I looked on their, on the website and they have, have that disease. But I'll keep an eye out when I'm there. But anyway, back onto kind of more positive things. Um, <laughs> have you always, you work for the Woodland Trust and have you always been passionate about woodlands and the outdoors? I've always been passionate about the outdoors and being in nature. I, I was brought up in a little village uh, in Derbyshire, just out on the edge of the Peak District, really. Uh, and this was back in the 70s and 80s where we didn't really have internet or computers were just coming in various other things. So you, you did, as a kid, spend a lot of time just trying to amuse yourself with your friends. And so we'd go basically out of the village, up onto the moors, we'd be building dens, we'd be playing hide and seek and all that stuff out there in nature. That, that was really my first experience of it. And it, I, I got hooked from there, really. My granddad also was a, a, a big nature fan as well. So and, uh, and because both my parents worked, uh, my, my grandparents did spend a lot of time sort of bringing me up when I was young, so I, I spent a lot of time going out on, on nature walks with my granddad, and he would point out all the different the birds and the trees. And it fairly natural for me then that I went on to do biology at university and ecology at university, as that was my interest was. And from then on, I really um, I went back to Derbyshire, and I, I spent uh, about 10, 15 years actually working on the moorlands there, uh, helping the, for natural England, helping restore the moorlands they're in a pretty bad state themselves so it's mm. my attention focused from moorland to grassland on to uh, ancient woodland and trees well they're such fascinating things it's really don't uh, don't begrudge making the change at all really great to be, be involved now in in what is effectively the peak of our well i consider the, to be the peak of our habitats the, the, the one habitat that will probably support most sort of other species uh, that we've got growing in the UK. Amazing. Well, both are really important carbon sinks. And with the Woodland Trust, so your aim is to plant and protect and restore woodlands in the UK. And we yeah. know that there's about 2.4% um, of ancient woodlands, which I love ancient woodlands. I would <laughs> worship the woodlands because I just know they're irreplaceable. There is a lot of ancient woodlands which has been replanted with non-native species too, isn't there? There are, and that, that, I, that is one of the major problems for us. I mean, um, as you say, that there's about 2.4% uh, of the UK's land area is left as ancient woodland, which is not a lot really. And of that, uh, probably about 60% of that, we're not entirely sure about the but six, somewhere around 60 to 70% of that is is threatened itself. And this can be for various reasons from development, it can be threatened by deer grazing and various other pressures that can be threatened, as we talked about before, by tree disease. But one of the biggest threats we do know is uh, they are uh, non native conifers. This really came about because of the wars, in effect. The first, and during the First and Second World Wars, the, the country nearly ran out of timber. There was no, we, we got really short on timber supplies, so building houses and doing all sorts of, sort of infrastructure work. 
And so we had to think of ways of, uh, certainly after the Second World War, of, of increasing the country's timber production. And there's, there's no two ways about it today. We still do need more trees of woodland in the UK rather than uh, sort of importing it and bringing it all in and pushing up the carbon footprint by uh, by shipping uh, lots more wood in from abroad, really. So the, the answer was at the time, obviously, because, again, in the wars, landowners at the time were... were, were Food security was also very important. Not only would also nearly run out of timber during the wars, but also kind of various stages nearly run out of food. And so we were still in a, a process of rationing. And so um, the last thing that landowners wanted to do was put trees on top of land that could grow all the things like all the crops, wheat or barley or even sort of livestock, which would feed the people as well as, uh, as, as kind of produced timber. So at the time, it seemed the obvious answer was actually to uh, to put the conifers to create this timber on top of where woodland was where the trees were already growing effectively because you lose any space for growing the crops. Then. The problem is with conifers; they are they cast a lot of shade. They're pretty dark. And this shade also because they they're obviously evergreen; they don't lose their leaves in winter. So you still get the shade all the year round, not just in a very particular times of year as you would be broadly trees. And the problem with this is that a lot of our ground flora, in particular, a lot of our uh, plants that grow under trees in native woodland, are specifically adapted for a very kind of dappled light level that you'd find on broadleaf trees. And as soon as you put conifers on there, you decrease the light that gets through to these plants, and they really, really struggle to sort of carry on. And as soon as you start, obviously, losing the ground flora, you, you start losing the invertebrates because there's no pollen, there's no nectar for them to feed on. Then you start losing the birds because then the birds can't feed on the insects, etc., etc. So it, it kind of builds up, really. Um, and it's not that we're anti-conifer by any means. Uh, still today, as I say, we actually need more trees, and that includes more conifers in the country both meet our timber land and to sort of help with absorbing carbon. We just think there are better places that these conifers could have been put than on top of existing broadleaf woodland. And so it's just a matter now of finding uh, new places where we can put conifers without having such a big impact on the native wildlife. And at the same time, if we try and restore the conifer woodlands back uh, into having a mainly broadleaf canopy and bring back the ground flora and the invertebrates and the birds, that would be absolutely great. That's amazing. I have been doing some research about the land girls back in the Second World War, and yeah. I know that they they were working very hard, but then there was the forestry side, the lumber guilds, and yeah, they absolutely. were in charge yeah. of taking down these trees. And... Um, and I think there's a bit of a hoo-ha between the two kind of groups of girls because the lumberjills would have shorter hours, but they were carrying these different machineries and sawing yeah, down yeah. on the tree. So they were using different muscles. And I just like that kind of contrast between the two. But they also took down a lot of the hedgerows uh, in preparation for making the fields bigger, keeping and making it easier if they needed to get any tanks across the land or things like that. <laughs> and now there are some grants and things that encourage people to plant their hedgerows i know we've got an ancient hedgerow here which i just need to find the plants to be able to put back in and hedgerows are corridors they're so important for different wildlife as well aren't they absolutely and because as you said before we've only got a very small number of ancient woodlands left and they're scattered around the landscape so these are they're basically islands surrounded by fields and it's very very difficult then for any wildlife that's in that wood 
be able to, to sort of transfer ads across the landscape to reach other woods because they have to cover, they cover these big open spaces that are generally cereal fields and they don't like just open spaces. They, they're adapted specifically to be under the trees. So hedgerows, uh, and, and this is again, we, we've just learned probably in the past 20 years or so, are totally important just to, to connect these ancient woodlands up and provide corridors where things like dormice, where things like plants in the woodland can spread into these hedgerows and then they can travel into other woodlands where they're not currently found. So, and putting these hedgerows back is really, really important to us. And it's, it's hedgerows themselves are, are very, very slow uh, to become established uh, and for this biodiversity to build up in them. It takes about 100 years from a hedgerow being planted for each additional species to come into it. So uh, if you basically plant a hedgerow, the two species, hawthorn, maybe a bit of blackthorn, it will be another 100 years before you get another hedgerow species growing in there or another hedgerow plant growing in there. It's actually a good way for to uh, measure the age of an hedgerow. It's trying to go and count the number of species that are living in there. gives you a bit of an idea how old that hedgerow is. And you can find hedgerows that are, again, on for about 1,000 years old in the countryside still although a lot of these were grubbed out earlier. So it's actually great that we're putting some of these back and rebuilding these corridors and giving wildlife the opportunity to spread even more. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that in the hedgerows that we have here, I have noticed a few kind of native garden birds, woodland birds, and I just need to now sit out and spend a bit more time seeing the smaller insects and everything which is there. Um, so from hedgerows back to woodlands again, the signs of a healthy woodland are, well, there are lots of different size, signs to show that it's healthy, from having wood anemone to snowdrops or bluebells. What shows a healthy woodland. <laughs> yeah. And this, this is where it gets slightly complicated. And, and you're right. I mean, uh, and, and for many years previously, we've always thought that, that basically the woodland plants are in there a bit of an indicator about the health of the woodland. The more plants you get, particularly the flowering plants on the woodland floor, then generally the healthier that woodland is. Uh, and it, it's not only the, the, the plants that we're looking for. The plants are a bit of a proxy for us, it, it, basically because it's relatively easy to see the plants. Uh, particularly in springs, they're adapted to uh, our dapple conditions. They, they like they, they make the most of the light before the leaves on the trees in the spring. So actually, if you go at the right time of year, you walk through a woodland, uh, it's usually really easy to see the plant there. Well, the plants also provide uh, nectar and other resources for the, the insects. So basically, the more different plants you get in, different types of plants you get in there, the more different types of insects you'll probably find in that woodland as well. And then obviously because the, the birds and the mammals all eat the insects, the more uh, different types of mammals, uh, and particularly bats and various other things in the woodland. In, in a lot of respects, the plants are a very good indicator of the health of woodland. But it's not the whole story. And it's just over the past kind of 10, 20 years, we, we're just finding out this, that effectively in the past, there'd be other things happening in these woodlands. There'd be older trees developing in these woodlands. These older trees would also be dropping a lot of dead wood. We're just discovering how important, really, dead wood is to the woodland ecosystem. The dead wood that's in there provides so much more habitat for different fungi, for different insects, uh, and various other things as well. You find a whole host of different species that only ever live in the dead wood. Obviously, the more dead wood there is in the woodland, then the healthier that woodland is also. This has been a bit of a problem in the past because actually land managers and people who have been looking after these woodlands, especially where you've got public walking through the wood, if there's lots of old dead branches, old stumps and various things lying about, then the wood tends to look very untidy. 
and the managers thought that it put them in a bad light, that people would think as they're walking through the woodland that they're just leaving it to tidiness, that they're not really managing the wood in the right way. But actually they were, it was, was the right way to manage the wood. Since then, kind of a lot of the land managers started up, adding up the, dead, the old dead wood, um, they started taking out some of the old stumps, etc. That's exactly the wrong thing we're supposed to do. So well, we can get lots of, uh, of ancient woodland today that has got even the flowers back into it. It's got a broadleaf canopy instead of conifers. It's got lots of ground flora. But we still wouldn't count it as a healthy woodland because it doesn't have the dead wood in it. Similarly, in the past, the, the open spaces in woodland, we, tend, we, we always think this woodland has been static, but they never really were. They, you'd often get some of the trees would blow down because of a storm. They'd create an open space. The deer would then come into that space and keep it open for a while with new grasses and flutters of different herbs coming through. That in turn would attract different invertebrates and different wildlife. Eventually, the deer would probably stop grazing there. They'd find fresher pastures elsewhere. Once the deer had gone on, the trees had started to grow back, that open space would start to fill in again and become woodland again. Or somewhere else in the woods, some more trees might blow down in another storm and start the entire process again. So you'd always have these kind of... Uh, patches of open space, these glens and rides and open spaces wouldn't stay in the same place. Over many years, they'd kind of wander around different parts of the woodland. And that created a mosaic habitat, which was perfect, for the, again, for the invertebrates, for various uh, different flowering plants. And so we can still have woodlands that's today that's just a complete sort of monoculture trees, basically, doesn't have this open space. And so, again, we need to try and recreate some of these open spaces to get some of this health back into these woods. So the moral of the story is there's no straight lines in nature and keep it as messy as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. The messier, the better. <laughs> so as 2021 is upon us and you must have some interesting plans for the year working with the Woodland Trust. Can you explain some good news that you've recently had? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've just heard that we've been successful in securing 4.6 million from DEFRA through Heritage Lottery Fund to actually try to protect ancient woodlands. In this case, it's England. We're hoping at the end of this project that we'll be able to extend that as well and go to the rest of the UK. But it's absolutely great because it now gives us the opportunity to go to land managers and say, we've actually got money available if you'd like to do some actual work in your woodlands to try and take this forward. And again, to look at how we overcome some of these threats. It's given us some great opportunity. We had a previous project like this where we managed to reach about 10% of the ancient woodlands in the UK. We're hoping that with this similar amount that's just come in, we'll be able to reach another 10%. And, and actually, we'll be able to, because we're learning all the time, we didn't quite understand the processes of restoration of ancient woodlands during the previous project. We've got a lot more information now. So we're hoping we can use this money to have a lot bigger impact to both help bring in more wildlife and help protect these, these woods as important to everybody, really. And now's the time to do it. We just have to do as much as we can as soon as possible, really. Absolutely. And the longer we leave ancient woodland, particularly the stuff with conifers on top, every time you go in and you have a round of felling the conifers, you destroy a bit more, damage a bit more of the uh, ground flora that's already in there. And eventually it gets to a point where it, there is just no ground flora left and it will never come back. So uh, we have to really sort of act on this now and get and, and work on this now. That's really, really exciting. I'm really happy about that. <laughs> For anyone wanting to know more about woodlands, ancient woodlands, uh, do you have a book that you've read that you would recommend? There's always one book, isn't there, in all the habitats. And for ancient woodlands, there's it's no exception, really. And I'd really recommend, actually, I'd recommend all the works of a, a guy called Oliver Rackham, who was, um, Oliver Rackham was a, a particular, he was a professor of ecology at the University of Cambridge. 
and he, he just loved the British countryside as well as, as kind of working in it. And he wrote lots and lots of different books on the British countryside, all about its history, and explained to a lot of people how actually most of the British countryside, we, we think of it as a pretty wild place, but actually it's a result of, of years of being managed by man that's created the countryside we know today. Well, Rackham also had a particular soft spot, I think, for, for trees and ancient woodland, uh, and he spent a lot of his time working on that. And he wrote a particular book back in the 80s, and it was, it was literally just called Ancient Woodlands, uh, and it's by Oliver Rackham. Uh, and it, it was a it was a bit of a uh, game changer when this book came out because it, it really changed everybody's perceptions about the importance of ancient woodland, where the number of species that they're supporting, why we should be protecting ancient woodlands, uh, and why they needed a bit more support than probably sort of any other woodlands in the country. It was the first time really anybody thought of this. Well, the thing about Rackham, as well as being really useful for the academic, is he put things across in a very understandable way. He didn't make it sound highbrow or too academic for people to understand. And it's actually, his, his books are generally relatively easy reading when it comes to a kind of academic text. So, yeah, I'd certainly recommend anybody who's interested in it, pick up Oliver Rackham's uh, book on ancient woodland. Brilliant. Thank you. And I think it's really important that we all share our favourite books, which are accessible, that are easier to read, because then the more people read it, the more people understand and hopefully go out of their way to help protect protect the woodlands. Um, Absolutely. How can we keep up to date with the work that you guys do online? Like most charities these days, we've got a pretty big online presence. So um, uh, first step is <laughs> got to be our website. I'd encourage everybody to come and have a look at the website. And we, we've got loads of stuff in there, loads of pictures, loads of information about managing woodlands, loads of information about different tree species and, and kind of the wildlife that they support as well. So uh, that's probably the first stop to go to. And that's uh, www.woodlandtrust.org.uk. We've also got a big social media presence and we, we, we regularly sort of posting on Facebook. We try to get lots of different things on Twitter every week, uh, just short snippets of information for people to, that people I find interesting to try and follow. So, and I think on Twitter we're just at hashtag Wooden Trust. So uh, keep an eye out for all the stuff that's out there. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today and I will keep an eye on what you get up to. That's brilliant. Thank you. At the end of every episode, I share a quote which I feel sums up everything we've been talking about, and my quote today is from Sir David Attenborough. Ancient trees are precious. There is little else on earth that plays host to such a rich community of life within a single living organism.